Welcome to another edition of the Built for the Storm podcast. Hosted by three-time World Series champion Jeremy Affelt. Affelt brings it. Chopper on the infield. Affelt to the bag himself. Get ready to experience life's winding journey through the minds of proven leaders in the worlds of sports, business, and entertainment. And he strikes out. That's four straight for Affelt. Can't do it any better than Jeremy Affelt. As they draw up your own personal playbook to overcoming the odds and achieving real success. We just don't give up. We don't quit. You know how we pieced everything together, man. Seeing teams win like this, the way we win. What's the best way to weather a storm? Run into it head on charging full steam ahead this is unbelievable you know game seven i mean this will be a memory for a long time for me i'm so happy i got to come to the park today here's the fearless leader of our pack jeremy affelt welcome back to built for the storm podcast my name is jeremy affelt i'm the host and i'm at my brewery free roam brewing company i'm sitting in my podcast studio i'm on the phone with an incredible woman and when we were a little background history before i fully introduced her we were in new york after doing stuff with cooperstown up in the hall of fame game and we went and saw the 9-11 memorial and i was just so taken back by what happened what went on going through the museum and i walked by this uh place called the 10 building and my wife looked at me and said i have an awesome story to tell you and she sat down with me and told me about uh denise and I have her on the line right now, and I'm super, super excited. She has an incredible story to tell, as her husband was a firefighter in the 10 building across the street during 9-11, and decided, I mean, he went right up that building to do what he was supposed to do and be a hero, and unfortunately, uh, Denise's world was turned upside down very, very quickly, and I want her to be able to share that story so, Denise, thank you so much for joining me. I, I really appreciate this. Thanks for having me. Oh, man, 9-11, man, it's been 20-plus years now, and I'm sure some of it feels like a long time. Some of it feels not too long. Uh, I know you've talked and you've probably shared your story many times, but one of the things that I was intriguing to me when I got on your website, I know it's kind of a blog, correct? Um, actually. My website is just, sometimes I write blogs, but okay. it's basically uh, for people to reach out to me. I do grief mentoring and public speaking. So I have the website basically so people can learn a little bit more about me and see if we're a good fit. Yes, yeah, called Strong and Soulful, correct? Correct, yes. Yeah. And so, I, I mean, I, I remember one of you sent me your email and I said, strong and soulful. I'm going to check this out because I actually, that is awesome. Like that, even the, the title uh, was intriguing to me, but you have something on there. It says my story. And the first thing I read, which is what I would love to try to just dialogue, let you tell the story as well, because I think you have an awesome story to tell. But I think this is a perfect segue into it. You say, I have spent countless hours with individuals and families struggling with grief, loss, and trauma. Although everyone's story is unique, there are certain feelings that seem to be universal. First is the shock and disbelief that we have lost someone or something so valuable to us. And when the numbness of shock dissipates, we are slapped with the reality. Life will never be the same. Fear of the unknown creeps in. But if we listen closely, there's also a whisper. The whisper of hope. The idea that life goes on. 
How, you ask? How do we move forward while holding tight to memories and dreams that seem so far away? If this is, sounds familiar, then I'm your Huckleberry, which I think was great because I'm a big Tombstone fan. But uh, I want to talk about that. That is such a great focus and view of like, how about life now? So if you think about 9-11, if you're able to go in the morning, uh, I know it's a little bit on your website, but if you could, if, if you're able to, and if, it, if it's not insulting or, 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 or disrespectful, could you tell me how this unraveled for you uh, the morning of 9-11? Yes. And I want to say before we go any further that nothing is is disrespectful. There are no questions that you can't ask me. I'm an open book. Awesome. So feel free. The morning of 9-11 actually was a completely ordinary day. My oldest was eight years old, had to get him ready for school. I had two other children at home, a three-year-old and an 18-month-old. And the only thing that was different was that I had had a medical procedure a few weeks before that, and I still wasn't feeling great. And for some reason, my kids fell back to sleep, the little ones, after I got my older guy off. And I never did that. My phone was ringing off the hook, and we didn't have... Cell, well, we did have cell phones at the time, but they weren't, you know, we still had regular house phones. Yeah, yeah. We only had the Nokia phone, with like the snake game right. at that time. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so my phone was ringing and I honestly wasn't answering it because I figured it was my sister, my sister-in-law, the people that I spoke to daily. And then my answering machine picked up. I had one of those old answering machines that you could hear. Yeah. you know, yeah. from another room. And it was my father and he never called me. So, um, I answered, I thought that something was wrong. And he asked me where Jeff was. And I said, he was at work. And at the time my father worked in Jersey city medical center and his office had a full view of the twin towers. And he said, well, plane just flew into the Twin Towers, there's a huge fire. And when he said that, I wasn't panicked. I honestly wasn't even that scared. I kind of was um, excited for him because he had a good job to go to. Yeah. I hadn't seen it on TV or anything like that. Um, but he was a fireman that loved his job. And Downtown Manhattan doesn't get many big blazes. Yeah. So right. I was I was excited that he would he would get to go to a good fire. But uh it wasn't long into our conversation when my father said, Oh shit, there's another plane coming. And in that moment, it wasn't even panic, it was confusion. I knew that we knew that it was not accidental but had no idea what was going on. And from there on in, I basically did what everyone else did and started staring at my TV yep. to try to figure out what was happening. I did know for certain that he was in there. And I mean, you went by his firehouse, 10 house. So uh, it's located right on Liberty in Greenwich, directly across the street from the World Trade Center. 
and they were first due to that building. That was their area. So I knew he was in there. And no, I didn't believe for a minute that those buildings would collapse. I don't think anyone believed that. Because they so were how they first, were constructed, right? Like you're like, they're thousands of feet in there, it seems like, you know, probably not that high, but being that high up, you, you're thinking no, that's they, so they well had engineered. To be, it wasn't even that. It's just who would think of a, yeah, of a building. Now that it's happened, it doesn't seem so extraordinary. But um, at that time, I don't think we'd ever seen anything like that. Yeah. So, no, I wasn't expecting it to collapse at all. But when that first one went down, I had a pit in my stomach. Mm. And then my thoughts started, I wasn't just worried for him. Prior to the collapse, we knew that the Pentagon had been attacked. We knew that the plane went down in Shanksville and everything closed down. They closed down all of our bridges, our tunnels. And I was on Staten Island. When you close down all the bridges and tunnels, Staten Island's no longer accessible right. to anyone. So I didn't know what was happening next. I had one kid in school, my two children at home, and I didn't go to the thought of him dying, but I knew something was something. It wasn't good. Yeah. So I was trying to decide if I should pick my son up from school or not, because schools are a bomb shelter, right? This yeah. is the way I was thinking. My yeah. son, I'll never live this, this decision down. So I was like, well, maybe he's better off staying there. Maybe I shouldn't go get him. And then my brother-in-law, um, who was a New York City police officer, called us and said, get all the kids home, keep everybody, you know, in one place. And so I went and got my son, but he was like one of the last kids left in school. Yeah, everybody else already picked him oh, up. My, yeah. I know, him and my nephew, they, they were there together. And um, he's still to this day, he's 30 years old. He doesn't let me live that down. <laughs> but um, the rest of the day was basically just not knowing it's it was the beginning of a journey of not knowing anything for a very long time and the not knowing part i think is one of the worst parts because your imagination just runs wild so i wasn't able to sleep i was pacing and pacing i was calling the firehouse there was no answer and at this point we had no idea what downtown Manhattan looked like. I didn't know that the firehouse had been completely blown out. Yeah. So I was just calling the firehouse, calling other wives. I called my husband's, the New York City Fire Department works 24-hour, they're called tours, like 24-hour shifts, and they partner with someone. So I called his 24 partner and he was also at work, which was unusual. Sure. Jeff was not supposed to be working that day. Oh, got you. Um, yeah, he, someone, someone in his firehouse had jury duty, and they asked if anybody could stay over. They forgot they had jury duty, so Jeff volunteered to stay. And so both him and his 24 partner were at work, but his 24 partner had gotten detailed out to a different firehouse. His wife hadn't heard from him either. And uh, that was really, there was no way to get information. So it was a waiting game. And 
my family came over and basically that was the whole day as far as I remember. I don't remember things clearly when you suffer yeah. any kinds of significant trauma. Your brain just doesn't allow it to follow a timeline. It's almost as if I get these little, I have snapshots of the weeks and the months that followed and then there's a little story attached to that and to this day people will come up to me that had spent time with me and um right around you know the maybe the first month or two and um they'll tell me things that i did or said and i have no recollection of it at all isn't that crazy the amount of trauma that your body can withstand but how it shuts down to protect itself because it couldn't probably handle all of that all at once you know well that's that's exactly it in hindsight i can say that from the minute those two buildings after they both went down my brain went into a protective mode it's denial part yeah. of it is denial sure and it's necessary at that point the denial is necessary because you can't process all of that at once if you did it would mean a complete collapse of oh, yeah. your of your nervous system you wouldn't be able to function at all i felt like i was barely functioning as it yeah. was but yeah i think if you didn't have some of these defense mechanisms that are built into us thankfully yeah we wouldn't be as resilient yeah. so that's an interesting thing that you said because i think that that's what so many people almost feel bad about like denial like you said, it's actually necessary. Like when you're going through trauma, when you're going through just a terrible time, it's okay for a period of time to be in denial of it. It literally slows your body, your brain, your neurological system, your probably your heart. Everything that gets set off, you almost, like you said, it's a necessary thing to be in denial because it actually will help almost calm stuff down long enough for you to process truth. You know, I, I, that's an interesting. I've never heard that before, but it makes a lot of sense. But a lot of people are always like, well, you're just in denial. But to give permission, like, no, no, it's okay right now to be in denial. Get through some of it, and then we'll process it. So you felt like denial was something that was super important to your story. I felt like denial was my friends for sure in oh, the beginning awesome. because uh, I wouldn't say, well, I can give you an example of the level of denial that I was in. A friend of mine, this is one of those stories that I absolutely don't remember happening, but my neighborhood on Staten Island was very blue collar, mostly police officers, firemen. So my uh, neighbor was a fireman who had grown up with Jeff. Jeff also grew up in the neighborhood that we lived in. So he had grown up with Jeff and his family. and. He was, I forget where they were. They were out of town. His wife was a flight attendant. So they were out of the country, actually. And he took planes, trains, and automobiles to get back to New York. This is like how dedicated oh. these guys are to yeah. each other. But when they got back, which was, I believe it was like two or three days after 9-11, I was walking outside like just i guess i don't even know why i was walking but i was i yeah. was um walking up the block and uh my girlfriend his wife said to me 
you know, when she was telling me the story, she said, you were walking and you had your arms crossed. And she said, I said to you, Denise, where's Jeff? And I said, he's at work. Like nothing, like nothing had happened. Like as if he was just at work. Yeah. And I don't remember that at all, but that's where my brain was. It went to this place where we were being told, this part is true, we were being told that the way the floors pancake down, that there were entire rooms intact. Oh, wow. So it created, yeah, I don't know if you went to the museum when I you did. were there, but so they had some of those rooms oh, or, yeah. or replicas of them. You know, yep. they were like stores or whatever. Right? Yeah. And so my mind's created this image like, okay, if there are these intact rooms, then maybe people are in there because they would have a place to breathe. And so that gave me hope for quite some time until uh one day my house my house from from the the day that it happened until probably jeff was recovered was filled with firemen oh almost 24 7. sure um so one of his good friends came over and i said to him he had just come from the pile that's what they called ground zero at the time so he had just been there digging around and um they said to him so Eddie, what do you think? I said, are they finding any guys? And I, he looked at me and he just, he couldn't even get the words out. He just like big bulky guy. He teared up and he just shook his head no at me. Yeah. And I was, I actually just saw him a couple of weeks ago and we had this conversation again yeah. um, because when he did that, I was like, well, what about the void? And he said, no. And I was so angry at him. I didn't react in an angry way, but on the inside, I was like, how dare he? Like, he's just giving up on everybody. Yeah. 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 And everybody else would come in and be, and talk about these voids and, you know, still hoping that they would find guys that were alive. And so I, went to the site myself for my birthday. My birthday is September 25th. So it was like exactly. So a couple weeks later you went. Yeah, exactly. Two weeks later I went. And when I saw what this city looked like, the size of just the pile of ground zero itself, I was like, how would anyone be found in here? It would be like finding a needle in a haystack. And all of a sudden it dawns on me that Eddie was the only one who was brave enough to tell me the truth. Sure. So after seeing that, I decided to have a memorial. Yeah. Just seeing it and going through the museum and seeing the videos and then hearing the phone calls, you know, they had recorded and, the way that stuff was in the dust and the ash and the way it fell and just the incredible travesty, we saw it from so far out and then going after, but I could not imagine walking up to that even two weeks later and looking at all of it, how people, how anybody even survived it. 
to be honest mm-hmm. with you, was it, well, anywhere in a 30-block radius, really. I mean, it's incredible how some of the buildings still stood. How long from when it happened to when the firefighter looked at you and said, no, I know you were angry, but then seeing it. But when was, I don't want to say hope lost, but I guess there's no other way to say it. When was hope lost of like, he's not coming back? Like, it, it's not happening. Well, so we were on the topic of denial and I want to bring it back yeah. because that was the level, like, again, not only was I in denial, but all of these guys, they weren't lying to me on purpose. Sure. You know what I mean? They weren't yeah. trying to make me feel better. They were also in denial, but going to the site um, brought me to another, I, I'm not going to say losing hope, but another level of acceptance. And I wasn't fully there, but when I got there, I couldn't, well, number one, I had worked downtown when I was younger, right near the World Trade Center. And when I got out of the car at the firehouse, right, that I had been to so many times and also very familiar with the neighborhood, I had no idea where I was standing in relation to anything because it was wow. the entire area was unrecognizable. Wow. There were still little fires burning. The smell, the smell oh. will never, ever leave my memory. Mm. And buildings were marked with orange X's. It was a war zone. It literally, yeah. I felt like I stepped into a war zone. And I think when I was there, I felt... I felt a lot, like you said, my brain went all over the place. I was like, oh my God, how could he be in this? How could they, they'll never find him. How could they find anybody? How are they ever going to clean this up? And it dawned on me that I wasn't the only person who lost someone because up until that point, it was really personal for me, even though I knew thousands of people were unaccounted for, that was the word at the time. It felt like it was just happening to me. And I got there and there were reporters and there were government officials and it was very intrusive. It just, it hit me like, okay, uh, this is real. There also has to be a boundary. I felt this overwhelming urge to protect myself and my children from Mm. the outside. And also to keep my husband sacred. Because people were already putting up pictures and yeah. and telling stories and all of that. And my husband was very private and I wanted to do things the way he would expect me to do them. Hmm. So the firehouse was gone. And that was also upsetting. The parts of it were still there. I was able to walk in. They had set up a command center inside, but none of the guys were there. Their rigs were gone. There was this feeling of where the hell did everyone go? Yeah, yeah, like sure. That, because the hospitals were all set up for triage and no one, there was no one there. It was, yeah. it was as if people just disappeared and sit thin air. And, I, and that emotion must overwhelm you too, because now the anger of like, you almost, did you feel like, what, do you guys just all run? Do you feel abandonment or did you just feel like confusion? I felt, this is going to sound crazy, I felt like I, number one, that I signed up for this. Sure. 
and um, I never, I didn't feel anger. Not at, I didn't feel anger at, I, I really felt confusion. That was that yeah. at that point, and I was so numb that I didn't feel anger at um, my husband. I didn't feel like he abandoned us. I felt really proud. Sure. There was a, how do I describe this? <laughs> I'm super spiritual. Yeah, and it's great. So there was a sense in me that he died doing what he loved. Sure. And I felt like he was too young, but at the same time, I felt like if you were going to choose how you would go. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like. Like I if I got to leave my family, if my family, if I'm leaving my family, this is the only way that I would say it is acceptable to leave my family. Right. Right. And yeah. honestly, there are so many crazy almost like foreshadowing in mine and Jeff's relationship. One of them was he used to say all the time that when he goes, he's going out big. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I guess he did. <laughs> yeah. Like, hello. Right. Yeah. And um, so that like rang in my head. It was almost like he knew. And then there was also this conversation that we had had around just his job and the dangers that it entailed. And I had made a joke once he had gone to a fire. He rescued a family. He had gotten like an award for it posthumously, but um, after he did it, he was like telling me about it. And I was like, are you what? You know, some of the dangerous parts. I was like, what are you crazy? Next time that happens, you have to tell them that your wife said that um, you're not allowed to go in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And he was like, yeah, okay, Denise. Yeah. Just like the same thing when I said to him, we were watching Dan's Brothers, and I said, if there's ever a war, I'm sending my, my boys to Canada. Yeah. And he yeah. was like, you're what? It was almost yeah, like yeah. you can't do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was yeah. like, if you he goes, why would you ever do that? And I said, because I don't want I don't want them to get hurt. I don't want them to get killed. And he goes, Denise, if they died like that, there's no more honorable way to die. Like he was not afraid of death and dying. Yeah. And so when he graduated from the fire academy, I was putting away Somehow he got interviewed by our local newspaper. And um, so I was putting that article away and they take a picture of them when they graduate from the academy. They're like official photo. And so I was putting that away. And for some reason, I started hysterical crying. My sister called me. I'm not a crier. Right? Yeah. And I, well, especially back then. But um, she was like, what's the matter with you? And I said, I'm putting, I feel like I'm putting this stuff away to take out at an, at a bad time. And she mm. was like, you're crazy. Why would you ever say that? He'll be fine. And yeah. this and that. And then, and then that's exactly oh. what ended up so coming to be. So it's crazy. Like the feeling of what all this could or very well be and actually did happen. But the whole feeling of. This man is literally signing up to say, if I have to die, I'm going to die saving somebody. And I might have to, it might be literally tomorrow. Like it can be tomorrow. Right. It can be 20 years. It might not ever happen. I mean, but this is what he signed. He wanted to do that. And that's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, and then he, it actually happened. I, I can't imagine 
I just feel like, man, it, you never think about it. My dad was in the Air Force. He was a bombardier for B-52, and he'd always leave and come back, or he'd leave and not tell us where he had to go because we were overseas during the Cold War, and they were doing whatever they do. Mm-hmm. And But I always assumed my dad would just come back. It, it wasn't like something that'd be like, well, he goes over there, and he does that stuff, but he has to come back at some point. You know, and, and but I could not imagine like walking That's that. Denial. And, yeah, and he literally <laughs> didn't come. It, he would. It, I I would not know like to come. He's not coming. What do you mean he's not coming back? Like he's he has to come back. You know, no, he he's not coming back. And I I just that kind of reality is I don't think a lot of people have. I just don't. I don't feel like people. I think they had it during the World Wars. It was pretty obvious that there's a good chance. Even this war now. I feel like I meet so many of these guys that go over there and, and I just had a, a buddy of mine who was a ground commander for, for the Rangers. He retired and he is a Purple Heart guy. He's done the worst of the worst to the worst of the worst because obviously 9-11. And he's like, nah, he just, he's been blown through doors. He's, but he always came back. I, I don't even, I don't even know how to like carry a story with someone that just didn't come back no matter what happened he came back so to actually live that reality though because at some point the reality does kick in right the reality you look at your children and you're like the story has got to be told dad isn't coming back yeah that was that was one of the again you go into this state of shock because it is so traumatic so you go into the state of shock but you're going through the motions, right? So it's almost like you're a shell of yourself, you know, going around and trying to make the best choices that you can make. And that telling my children was probably the hardest, hardest thing. My older guy knew something, you know what I mean? And, but my daughter, the younger one was 18 months old. He wouldn't understand right my my daughter was three and she was a daddy's girl so telling Mm. her I actually (laughs) sometimes I look back on some of my decisions the good ones and I'm like wow how did I think of that um being in that state of mind you know I didn't know how to tell them and I was so scared that this event would ruin their lives so I wanted to try to make the best decisions I could along the way. And so I had no idea like who, who there's no guidebook for this. Um, I had no idea how to explain this to her. And so I sought out a child psychologist and I asked him, I, he must've thought I was crazy when I went in there because I went in there and like fell to pieces in his office. Yeah, but he was very helpful. He told me I had to be super concrete, and that the interesting thing he asked me if she had siblings, older or younger. And when I said that she had an eight-year-old brother, he said, "You are going to tell her your version, and it'll be very concrete. Don't lie. Don't romanticize it." But he said, "What will happen is her brother will be the one, like the kids." you know how kids are, they talk amongst themselves all the time. And that's how she will come to understand. Hmm. So I thought that was, that's crazy insightful to me. Right. You tell the concrete story. The older brother 
will be able to connect with her differently than you will because of the age and both those things will actually help her come to right. an understanding that I never even thought of it that way because an eight-year-old is going to tell it differently because, and he's probably right. going to talk. I mean, my 16 year old sometimes will tell me some things and I'll tell him some stuff. And then Logan, his 13 year old brother's going through it and I'm kind of doing stuff as 13 and Walker's come up to me and said, dad, that's not how he's feeling. He's feeling this because he's walking through this and he just, and I, he, cause he, he had just done it a few years earlier. And he actually, sometimes it frustrates me that Walker's like, let me go talk to him. And he'll go talk to him and he's better. And I'm like, "Yeah, well, what the they, hell did you just say that I didn't say? And he's like, dad, I, I talk to him differently than you do. Like you're, you're dad. It's a hard thing to hear, but it doesn't always work that you're talking from the dad perspective. Let me talk to him from the brother perspective and that, but it makes sense if you think about what you're saying, you know, it makes it helps them mm -hmm. understand. Yeah. So that was really uh, great advice. And are they close to this day? Are they? Are they? They are. They are. They are. They. There's like a. My older one is five years older than my daughter and six years older than my son. But now that they're all in their twenties, and my son is thirty, there's, you know, it doesn't seem like such an age difference. Sure. But they are very close. Thank goodness. And then, Thank how goodness. did your younger son? Was it a healthier? Would you say that? Like for me, this is not the same, but I'm just saying my younger, my kids were all um, three or four years younger now when their mom and I got divorced. And I, I kind of feel in some ways it almost was easier to do it if, if it had to be done. And obviously I didn't really want that, but it, I look back and be like, it probably was easier to do it then because they could kind of grow up with it and you kind of rather than all be teenagers, I either want it to be done when they're older or younger, but not really, I feel like in their impressionable years, it'd be a really tough thing for them to have to deal with because of how they're being shaped. Looking back, would you say it was, I don't know if how you would know, but would, would you say maybe it was like, it made it maybe an easier process to walk out that uh, morning situation and the recovery to, to know they got raised in that situation or do you, how, how, do you think it was easier or harder? I guess is what I'm trying to understand when it was come to give reality to a child. I think no age is, is good. Yeah, you're right. Um, that's probably, that's probably a great, that, great answer too. But, but on the other hand, my belief is that it's in the way that you present things. And I don't feel hmm. that I did everything a hundred percent. Right. But people ask me all the time, every single time, I speak, they want to know which one of my children was the most affected. And I have to say that it is my youngest. Really? And I, wow. Yeah, yep. And in the long run, not sure. in the moment. Sure. In okay. the moment, he didn't know he was 18 months old. He didn't know what was going on, but he also didn't have the ability to, he, I'm sure he felt that yeah. something was not right but he didn't have the ability to verbalize that. And then as time went on, I have never experienced this myself, but I would imagine that it's very hard to hear people talk about your father and they know him and mm. remember him more than you do. Oh wow. Yeah. Um, 
And the other part is that my youngest is the spitting image oh, of my husband, the spitting image. And Jeff's friends who haven't seen Noah, Noah is my youngest, who haven't yeah. seen Noah since he was a, a baby or, you know, young kid, they'll see him now and they will tear up. Uh, and that, that, wow. that is hard to swallow. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So, um, I think that he had really the hardest time with it. Yeah. Yeah. That I didn't even, I wouldn't even have thought of that. Like I would have been like, man, I, he would have been the easier one, but man, that didn't really under that. That's a good perspective to have Oh man. That's, that's interesting to me. I got to ask one thing though. I've been kind of sitting on this question. <laughs> I know we've moved on, but cause I think of shame, right. And I think of guilt and I think of a lot of things that man storms bring like it, they mm -hmm. just bring a lot of it. Have you, what about the, I just am it, it, on a sidebar. What about the guy that took jury duty? I, I don't, that's, I, just, that's like a sensitive, not that I don't want to talk about it, but it became like a really sensitive topic. I hadn't ever met the person that he uh, worked for. Got you. And um, we had a memorial it was basically a funeral, but we hadn't recovered Jeff's body. So there yeah. was a casket. The casket was filled with everything that symbolized who Jeff was as a man. And um, when we were in church, I was looking across and there was this fireman who had sunglasses on and he was hysterical, like sobbing. Mm. And I was thinking to myself, my God, like this guy's a mess and rightfully so, but like yeah. no one else was like, like it was, it was really, um, he stood out. It, it stood out to yeah. me. Yeah. Exactly. So I had no idea who he was and he didn't come up and introduce himself or anything. And then I got a letter from his wife and she was basically saying how, she knew that Jeff had worked for her husband and how blessed they were to have their, you know, for her to have her husband still here with her children and how guilt stricken they were that I had lost my husband. And I never once, never once, and this is like, I, I, I could swear on my husband's grave. I was never angry about that because hmm. The way they changed shifts was really part of the job. Sure. Um, I didn't blame him. And the other part of it is that the timing of the planes flying into the building was at change of tour. So, you know, guys are coming and going at that time. Sure. What ended up happening in so many cases and why the reason why we lost so many firemen is because guys that were that were leaving hopped on the rigs anyway. They knew that it was huge. So certain companies, especially rescue companies, they were riding heavy, like double yeah. what they would normally have on the rig. All of those guys ran in and didn't come out. So my husband would have done I, I the same believe thing. that he probably would have done the same thing. Sure. And the the final part is that I believe in my soul that when it is your time, it is your time. Sure. 
and nothing is going to stop that. There were guys that weren't even working that day that ended up coming in and not coming home. They right. weren't even there when the building, you know, right. like, yeah. so I didn't hold any animosity. Yeah, there's I no think. blame game here because your husband just likely could have tried to get in his car and drive over there on his own before they shut the bridges down. And he could have done all of exactly. that anyway. So, yeah, sure. Well, that's what they called every – it was a full recall. So everybody had – you know, whoever was not there had to try to make their way in anyway. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so so it's one of those things that it's just – it's just the way it happens. I think for him, it was very painful and he didn't know what to do with that. And he ended up passing away, not anything to do with 9-11. So he isn't with us anymore, either, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. That, that man, I, so, thanks for that. I, I was just like, cause I could only imagine the emotions are everywhere. Once you can come out of that, cause there's different stages of grief, right? And anger is one of them. Was there ever a time, did you ever run that stage where, where it's just now I'm just angry? Like, and I'm, I, I'm trying to be sensitive to the deal, but I just know how, how I would be like angry. I mean, do you have that where you look and you're just angry at somebody and I'm not trying to lead you. I was just saying, is there, did you ever put the blame on, was there a blame game situation where you were just pissed off and just had to work um, through that? There was a little bit of anger around, I don't think I've ever said this to anyone before, but there was a little bit of anger around, and not that I would ever want anyone else to lose, you know, I would never, I wouldn't want to lose another single person to the World Trade Center, but I couldn't understand how certain people were sent up and other people weren't. Yeah, and. Gotcha. And how they made it out. Like, I wanted to know what's the protocol. Like, what was the protocol? Who decided who went where? And there was no answer for that. Number one, it was a ridiculous question. But there was no answer for it because this was so unprecedented. You know, it it was chaos. And after that, I know a lot of people, a lot of other widows felt they would see couples and they would get angry that um, they didn't have their significant other. My anger would come in these little moments. Like I never had an extended period of just being angry, but I would have these little moments of anger when something mostly around the kids, like something would happen with the kids and I would um, be overwhelmed and trying to do the job of two parents and, I would feel like I did not sign up for this, you mother. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. This was not the agreement that we made. Yeah. And so it would come in those moments. But then immediately following that, I would be like, yeah, but no, you did sign up for this. You did sign up for this. And he chose you as his wife because he knew that you would be strong enough to handle whatever. Yeah was given to you yeah yeah so um it was just like i said anger wasn't my go-to emotion i think that for men anger is definitely i think if oh. the shoe was on the other foot my husband would have been a fall down drunk left my kids with my mother. yeah 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 bitter <laughs> getting in fights with everybody yeah yeah right. for sure until until he got his stuff together right? yeah yeah but that would have been his first year mine was really um it was like a really deep 
longing. Yeah. It's like this feeling of something you want something so badly that you know you can never have again. Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah, I could only yeah, that that makes sense to me actually to be honest with you. It's just that longing for somebody like you just sit there and you're just like you didn't sign up for it, but you weren't exactly ready either. You know, it wasn't like you were ready or prepared for that. It wasn't something that was on the forefront of your mind when you went to work that day. You know, like there's just, that's just not it. So you have got kids, you're raising these children. In some of my stuff, you know, one of the, when, when I went through quite a bit of trauma a few years ago, like I had to do this trauma egg and my therapist took me through this trauma egg and they're like, okay, here's all the stuff start from when you're a kid to where you are now. And, and I had that same thing. You were talking about blackout and stuff. You're like, I didn't remember stuff before I was like five. And I, had to I call- have that. This is interesting. Go ahead. I want to hear your story. So I have I, a lot to say on this topic. Yes. Yeah, so I couldn't remember anything. And I remember mm-hmm. I was like, I had to call my dad. And my therapist was like, well, call which one you trust more right now, your dad or your mom. I'm like, well, my mom's my mom. But in the situation I'm in right now, I need to talk to my dad. She's like, well, then call your dad. So I called my dad and I'm like, dad, I can't, I can't, I don't have a memory before I was five. Like, I don't understand that. And I can remember, but then it was like, it's nothing. And she said, actually, she said, that's actually not good. Like some people remember, she says, believe it or not, some people have memory. They actually can almost remember when they're in their womb, their mother's womb. Like they have that ability. And I'm like, well, I don't even, I'm not even close to that. And she's like, (laughs) you know, and and she's like, well, this is where you got to call people. And I remember my dad told me this story and I was like, what? So I remember drawing this story of when I was two, my dad explained it to me. And so it was a trauma for him and I, like, it was just a scary moment. And then it was crazy how once I drew that, I had to draw, I drew stick figures. I'm not a good draw on my trauma egg. I drew it and my brain unlocked. It was crazy. I sort of remember all kinds of stuff, good and bad, but I had to unlock yeah. it, you know? And it was like, mm-hmm. whoa. And it was just an explosion. And then I just, all my, and then it told me it kind of basically, my therapist is saying, well, this is why you are the way you are. This is the shaping. This is how you react. This is what you're actually needing. And you don't know it. You're deficient relationally in this area because you're not getting this and you think it's that. And it's like, it was so awesome for me to do, but it was a healing process of like, that's what I needed to be able to move forward and get stronger and be more complete in knowing who I am so that I could be strong for my children, for myself. And Candace, now I've told her, I'm like, I'm honestly a better husband to you than I was to my ex-wife. And honestly, our divorce wasn't even my fault, but it takes two to tango, right? So it's like, I was like, man, I'm, I'm going to be a better husband. I'm a better father to my children. I'm like, I'm just better for who yes, I am, yes, you know? Yes, yes, That's So how did you- of trauma. Yeah. Well, I shouldn't say it's the gift of trauma. It's the gift that, that you get when you choose to work through your trauma. Yeah. Gosh, you just covered so many things. I know. know. It's interesting. I decided right after September 11th, I believe it was October, maybe even before we had Jeff's memorial, I started going to a therapist and I found this fantastic therapist. And at this point, I really, I knew about, I was a nurse at the time and I knew about trauma on the physical level, but I didn't really know anything about the way trauma happens emotionally. 
And so I went in there, of course, to deal with my grief over losing my husband and how I would move forward, how I would survive. And what ended up happening was I tell this story and I say it, it was opening Pandora's box. All of a sudden, we were tracing trauma through my entire, you know, younger adult life, my teenage years, into my childhood. And similarly, I don't have any memories of my childhood. Like, it's actually frightening. I have hardly any memories before the age of about nine. Wow. And um, so I learned at that point that trauma is also cumulative. And that helps, or I shouldn't say it helps, but it determines how you will react to future traumatic events. Yeah. And I say it was Pandora's box because working your way through all of that is so difficult. It's so painful. It is definitely not for the faint of heart. Yeah. And a lot of times my therapist would say to me, um, make sure you come back to your next appointment because what often happens is when you start getting into the real thick of things, people stop showing up yeah. with their friends. Right. Yep. And I'm sure you experienced this. I was like, I was determined, but I was also scared shitless of my own story. Like yeah. that, that was the, uh, that was what she would say to me. Don't be scared. This is just you. Yeah. And so. And I think a lot of people do that. I don't want to face the reality of who I am. I don't want to face the reality of who I am. I don't even, frankly, right now, I got, I don't really want to face the reality of what's going to happen in a week from now, I've had a lot of stuff hit me and now I got to talk about my past and I'm, I don't have my husband. I've got chaos everywhere. I'm raising right. kids. You almost don't want to deal with it, but you have to deal with it. You have to take that storm on or you're never going to get out the other side. You'll never get there. And yeah. I try, I try to tell people that what ended up happening was that my greatest strength were what I uncovered in those darkest parts of my life. And so if I would never have, have done any of that, I wouldn't be who I am now. And similar to your experience, I am a way, way better person now. Or at least I should say that I feel like I'm more myself now. I'm yeah. my insides match my outside. And that's really hard to do because it doesn't happen 100% of the time either. But um, I feel like I'm true to myself and I try to be as authentic as I can be. I'm not trying to people please. I'm not trying to bury emotions. I try to just put it all out there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But and that's one thing you learn through getting healthy is the fact that I don't have to wear a mask. Like, this right. is who I am. If you don't mm -hmm. like me, honestly, I'm not going to fake it. See, like, if you don't like me, then you're not, that's okay. I'm, I don't have to be upset with you for not liking me for who I am. I just know that that's not, you're not my people. You're, you're just not part of the exactly. circle. You're not part. And I'm okay with that. I don't have to yeah. not be okay with it. Right. You like, this is who I am and this is how I'm going to raise my kids. And this is how I'm going to process it. And this is how I'm going to, we're, we're going to do life. 
And I'm not apologizing to anybody because this is my situation and this is how I'm going to do it in a healthy way. And I'm not taking everybody's advice from every Tom, Dick and Harry that walks by. Like I have to know who I am. I have to know who my children are and I've got to know what healthy looks like in our situation right now. And that's not always going to be the same for everybody. Exactly. Exactly. And what, so that was the evolution, honestly. Um, I really doubled down on my boundaries because everyone did have an opinion, right? And everyone had, especially at that time, everyone, it's funny, I was guilty of this myself. (laughs) You know, people feel like there's a period of how long you should mourn. You shouldn't do this. You shouldn't do that. A good widow doesn't do this. A good widow does that. You shouldn't allow your kids, you know, there was, there were all sorts of rules, right? Yep. That didn't feel right to me. So I kind of had to say, I'm just doing this my own way. And I don't care what anybody else has to say about it. And I knew that I was doing the right thing because I didn't feel the need to defend myself. It was kind of like, I'm just, I'm just doing this. And, and if you don't like it, that's fine. You don't have to agree with me. And I just did what I thought was the next right thing. That was it. That was, it was like really little baby steps. But um, in that process, I lost a lot of people. Sure. Um, which at the time, I didn't even have the energy to care about. Like, right. I know that sounds callous, but it's the truth. It was like, I only had so much energy and it had to go to the right places. So That's right. if you weren't in my life, you weren't in my life. I wished you well. That was fine. You know, that was all moving. Yeah. And um, at the same time, I drew in people that were so supportive and more in alignment with what I needed. So I find that grief and trauma, it really does that. It helps you sort out not only yourself, but you become really discerning about who your inner circle is going to be. And it's shocking because you think that certain people will show up and they, they don't. And other people that you would never expect come in and they're like angels. Yeah. No, I, I, I have this code of conduct in our, in our brewery and it, it's um, from a group I'm with called T12 and they're a Buffalo. They have what's called the Buffalo culture. And I, I was drawn to them because of the Buffalo brewery, but you know, they have a code of conduct. And the first thing is we find a way, then we head into the storm and then we enjoy the herd mentality or the first three and you find your way. And then you say, I'm going into this storm. And sometimes the storm found me, but I'm going into it. And then that herd mentality you enjoy it, but your herd is going to be the ones that walk with you in the storm. They don't walk against you. They don't pull you from it. They're actually saying, no, we're going through this with you. And I remember my buddy, when I was going through mine, man, he was great. He was like, here's what I'm going to do. He flew in in my biggest moment and he looked at me and I was in a hotel room and I was scared to death. And he looked over at me and I remember he threw me a six pack of beer. And he's like, I know what just happened to you isn't something you really were thinking was going to happen. And I have no idea what's going to happen from here on out. But I will tell you this, you and I are going to walk to the gates of hell and I'm going to shoot that son of a bitch with a squirt gun if we have to. But we're not going to let the devil do this to you. And you know what you felt? You felt 
oh my, like you felt so much strength because that's who I need right now. I need this. And I don't need people to say, hey, this is what you should do. He was like, I don't know what's going to happen, man. We're going to walk to the gate to hell. We're going to shoot him with a squirt gun if we have to. Like, we're just going to, we're going to, we're going to take him on. And it was so fun from, it, it, I guess it wasn't fun, but it was such a refreshing scenario of like, those are the people you knew were going to be the people that you had to have. And anybody else that was not willing to get on that train is not for me right now. And no offense, right. but I'm moving on. And I got to raise my kids, you know? So I think that was, that was such a refreshing deal for me. And I didn't, and I, I'm I'm just like a guy that doesn't want to offend people. So sometimes I'm not afraid of confrontation. I just, am like, Hey man, I'm not going to just go find people to kick off my train. But I actually was, I was like, nah, you're out and I'm okay with it. You want to be mad at me? I don't really have time for you to worry about if you're mad at me or not. This is the way I'm going. Yeah. I, um, I think Candace told you that I'm in the process of writing a book and I have an acronym that I use when I speak and uh, the acronym is GRACE. And it's it's really a simplified version of um, all the tools that I use just to heal myself, not just from September 11th, but really, you know, September 11th was the straw that broke the camel's back. Yeah. And um, so... The C in grace is community. And I can say with 100% certainty that none of us, like you said, we may not choose what happens to us, but we do choose how it will play out in the future, how it'll shape the rest of our lives. And community is to me the most important factor because Number one, we all need support. No one heals alone, even though, you know, people like to say, uh, I don't need anybody, you know? Yeah. (laughs) But none of us heal alone. That's right. And so the important part about community is is what you were just saying, discernment and being able to surround yourself with the right people. I mean, as parents, we tell our teenagers this all the time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but sometimes we don't follow our own advice. That's right. And what, what's interesting to me is that that community evolves, it changes. And if it doesn't, I think that there's something wrong. You know, I yep. think that as we grow, certain people fall out of our lives and new people come in. That's okay. Yep. I think it's actually beautiful. But I know that in my particular circumstance, especially in the beginning, I would never have survived without my family, my friends, and the fire department. The fire department did everything. I mean, they brought food. They made sure that all these people that were in my house every day for a month were fed three meals a day, that there was coffee there. They went grocery shopping for me. They made sure that my bills were paid. I mean, they did everything. And then my family did all the other stuff. Who was doing my laundry, who was helping me with the kids, who was bringing wine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure it it was was upticked a little bit, yeah. It was really um, a group effort. I know that I would never have made it to where I am right now if I didn't have a solid support system. And coming through the storm and getting through it, you obviously have. And I mean, it's been 20 some years. But looking back, what are the things that you could say 
you learned about yourself in that you could say, man, if you're going through a storm, I know these things need to happen. And they might not all look the same and it might, but I know that this is what got me through trauma. This is what got me through the storm. These are the things, if I had to encourage anybody going through a storm, this is the things to look for and to deal with in your own way. Well, someone asked me this the last time I spoke and um, I gave an answer. And then after, you know, when you're put on the spot and afterwards I was like, shit, I could have said something else. One of the, throughout my life, anytime I've been in a situation that, I mean, exactly what we're talking about, but anything that has really gotten me in my core, I can say that the number one thing that carries me through is unshakable faith. Mm. I have, ever since I am a little girl, I have this faith in something bigger than me. It's almost as if, I don't know, it's almost an, it's an inner knowing. It's, yeah. I, I don't question it. And I am never, I question religion regularly. I'm not religious, Yeah. <laughs> but there is a faith that I am held by something way bigger than me and that I don't always know the plan, but the plan, no matter what it is in the end serves my highest good. Yeah, I would say I have a faith in God. I'm not a religious person. I just have a personal relationship, but I, I agree with that. I think there's something out there is, you are here for a reason. And I think that's the unshakable faith that I, if I can relate to you on is like, I tell people, as long as there's a heart beating inside of your chest, you are supposed to be here. And it's not to, <laughs> you have a reason. You know? I'm not laughing at you, but when I was teaching yoga classes to the military, I would do this exercise where um, I would have them, you know, on their bellies on the ground doing kind of like Superman, you know what I mean? So really activating your core and then have them just lay flat and your heart rate, you know, you can feel your heart beating because it's pressed up against the ground. And I would say to them, focus on your heartbeat. Do you feel that? Because if you feel that, then you know that there is a reason why you are still here. Yeah, that's the whole point. That, you're right. That is that you feel that you're supposed to be here. And you right. could say, well, life sucks. It doesn't suck. Your scenario sucks. Your life does not. Because as long as it's beating, you have a purpose to be here on this, to help somebody to help yourself, to help your children, to help your family, to help your friends, to tell your story to other people like you're doing right now, to be able to encourage people. I feel like what you've said has been so good because you, you've had so many key points in here. One, that denial is okay. It's a part of trauma. Denial happens. Anger will happen. In your recovery, those kind of things have to happen. But truth is super important too. And that's what I heard from your child psychologist is, hey, full transparency and integrity and honesty is the only way to tell the story. If you try to sugarcoat it or romanticize it or tell little black lies to get through it, you will fail people in telling the story because they'll believe something that's not true. And when they find out it's not, they actually will feel betrayed that you didn't tell them the truth. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's super important in your story of in your trauma, in your 
in the things that go on, it's, Hey, it sucked, but I'm going to tell you the truth. And I'm not going to tell you that I was, I did all right. Hey, I did the best I could. I don't don't know if I did it right. I don't know if I did it wrong. I did the best I could. And like you said, there's no manual for this kind of stuff and there's no, but I, I think you've handled it so well in writing a book I know you're writing a book. I don't know. Is it, is it the story or is it what you learned or is this about who you are now? Basically it's the acronym that I just alluded to and how I, I weave my story into how these specific tools played out in my journey. So um, the first one is gratitude and the R is radical acknowledgement and acceptance, mm-hmm. which speaks to what we were saying about denial. Denial is healthy, but there are levels of acceptance that have to happen in order for you to move forward. And so that doesn't all happen at once, right? It happens in little baby steps or however much you can digest at one time. And again, Every journey is individual, but there has to be a level of acceptance. And then A is action. And that just talks about setting intentions, knowing where you want to go, even if you don't know how you're getting there. And then also actual movement because trauma and grief get stuck in your body. This is the biological part of it. And you can't talk your way out of that. So moving your body is very, very important. And then C is community and E is emergent narrative. And I love that because it is the part of grief where you become the meaning maker. You get to write the ending of your own story. Like you said, we don't all have a choice in what happens to us. Most traumatic events, they're traumatic because we didn't have a choice. And that takes away your sense of control. You feel you know, you're just on this wobbly kind of a energetic level where nothing feels safe and creating this narrative, deciding how you want it to play out in the rest of your life is how you return back to a feeling of safety. It's how you memorialize someone who's lost. And it's also how you honor yourself Hmm. in the process. Hmm. Wow. I like that. I like that a lot. Well, I appreciate, man. I I know we've, we've talked a a, a long time, but man, I, I so appreciate your story and I'm so thankful your children have gotten through it with you and your family. And, uh, you've given me a lot of insight, man. There's a lot, there's a lot to chew on here. Uh, so that's why, that's why I actually was really intrigued by it because I think this is it's just a view that I was really, really wanting to to see and hear and because I would have honestly not thought some of the things that you have actually said. I wouldn't even have thought you would have felt a certain way. You, you've done very, very well, and I think it'll be very encouraging for people that have gone through trauma because I think when we, when we go through something like this like or, or any kind of trauma, we kind of tend to think we're alone on an island, right? Like mm-hmm. no one has gone through it. No, people have gone through it. Everybody's gone through trauma. And honestly, you're probably not the first or the last one to have gone through something like this. And even though yours was unique, because there's probably never been something, obviously, there's never something that happened like that on our soil uh, before 9 11. People have let their husbands go to work and 
have died in some traumatic scenarios in but to just see how you, the perspective you've, you've brought was, was absolutely incredible. I, I'm, 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 uh, I'm very thankful for the conversation, Denise. I, I really do. This is, this is awesome. And uh, I I'm, think um, I'm so appreciative to have had the opportunity, but I also think that you are so insightful. It's rare that I hear someone, especially a man, I don't mean to sound, um, you know, like a feminist, <laughs> no, like no. Yeah, but yeah. Um, men generally are really good at dissociating from their feelings and not wanting to have those hard conversations. And it sounds like you're a pro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've had a lot of so, therapy, Denise. I've had a yeah. lot. Of, <laughs> and you know, Candace, you know, my wife and she's like, she'll look at me sometimes and she'll just walk away and I'll look at her and I'll be like, you didn't really expect that ability from a guy like to feel. And she's like, and you know her, she'll just look at you. She's like, I don't even know how to respond to a man that, that can feel like that. I got to go. And she'll just walk off. <laughs> she'll just walk off. Cause I'm like, well, I've learned to take that. That's an okay thing. At first that hurt my feelings, but I mean, even some of the stuff I'll say to her, she'll walk into the room and I'll be like, man, you are honestly one of the most beautiful women, if not the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. And she'll look at me and she doesn't say, thank you. And I'll be like, you really still don't know how to respond when a man says that to you. And she's like, nope, just keep walking. This, let me keep walking. <laughs> it's, it's super so fun. Common. I'm still working on that. Like women are really good at giving, 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 but terrible at receiving. Yeah, it's, it's hilarious. It, it just, it is what it is. But I, I, sometimes I feel like we're the exact opposite in the marriage. I'm like, you're like, I think you're the guy. I'm the girl. I think, honey, I think that's how it works right now. Like, yeah, yeah, but that's what you probably both need, right? <laughs> that's exactly it. That's exactly it. It's 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 pretty funny, you know. And I'll cause I'll look at her sometimes, and I'll be like, you know, you affected me right there, right? And she's like, what? <laughs> well, I'm just letting you know you affected me, and I'm, I'm trying. And she does not know. She's like, I don't even know how to like have a conversation about that. I'm like, well, we're gonna have to sit down because you affected me, and I gotta tell you how you affected me. And she'll just sit there and shake her head. She's like. Give me like 30 minutes. And I'm like, okay, I'll be sitting here in 30 minutes, but we have to talk about oh how you affect me. It, it's great. Like, it, That's <laughs> so, so good. Uh, it's really funny because when I first met Jeff, like I had said, I had so much childhood trauma. And when I first met Jeff, he was very wise. I mean, he was, he was 31 years old when he died, but he was way before his time. Like he was doing everything that people are just discovering right now. I have lots funny stories about that that i'll yeah. tell you in person in your brewery over yeah here love it can't wait but um one of the things that he said to me was we were like having some little disagreement and we weren't even married yet we were still dating and i was and this was my go-to with everything well if you don't like it you can leave that was my yeah. go-to for <laughs> everything i was the worst yeah in relationships right yeah. So um, I'm hyper independent and I was like, all right, well, if you don't like it, then you don't have to stay here. And he looked at me and he said, D, we could dis we could disagree and I'm not going to leave. Yeah. And it sounds so silly, but it was a completely different perspective than I had ever experienced in my entire life. It hit me like someone threw a brick at my head. Yeah. 
I was like, oh, wow. Okay. We can just agree to disagree. With That's you, right. You know, and it's just fine. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah. And I, I've had to tell and her that okay. I, I've still, I said, Candace, I'm just going to let you know, I need you to be able to just let me know that you're not, you're, you're good. You're not going anywhere. And, and you just need a moment. Like, cause I'll get that fear of abandonment. I have a fear of abandonment. Right. So like, I'll be like, Hey, I, I just need to make sure we can disagree, but you're not going to abandon the situation. And so I've had to work through that. And, and sometimes I just need an encouraging word that, Hey, we're going to agree to disagree here and it's okay. And you're not, you're not going to go anywhere. And she'll look at me and she goes, why would I go anywhere? Like, I don't just cause I'm not enjoying you at this moment. Doesn't mean I don't love you as a whole. I'm like, yeah, but you don't understand how hearing it helps me. You know, it calms me well, and she'll just walk and she'll be, she, I could just tell in her head. She's like, <laughs> she's like, I'm just not used to this, but I'm like, Hey, so I need to. funny when you hear, because I didn't, at that point, I didn't, I also have a fear of abandonment, but I didn't know that until after Jeff died. Yeah. Oh, I <laughs> my, can imagine. My therapist said to me, she said, Denise, of course you have a fear of people leaving you because my biological father, I don't even have a relationship with. He left sure. when I was two. And then I had been married for a year to someone who really was not mentally well. Right. And so he left and then, well, I left, but really he left before I like sure. he checked out before yep. I left. And then my husband who I absolutely adored and loved, dies yeah like it wasn't an intentional abandonment but she's still there yeah so i didn't even realize that that was going on when i would say yeah go ahead you can leave it was kind of the idea of if i'm telling you to leave then i don't i won't feel abandoned if you do i made the choice yeah it's so this is these are the unhealthy relationship patterns that we develop until we go to therapy and unlearn them that's right that's right. Yeah, you know, you're you're right on, man. I I I it's it's awesome. Uh, this is great. Yeah, this is this is this is so good. This is actually just encouraging, but also you know very empowering. So I'm so thankful that we got to we got to do this. And if you've tuned in, you're listening, man. What a awesome. This was a treat. Uh, I've done a lot. Of, I've had a lot of fun ones uh, over the course of the year, but this was on another level. So thank you so much uh, for coming on, uh, Denise. I so appreciate it. And, uh, if you're, if you're, if you're still listening, Bill for the storm podcast, free roam brewing company in Bernie, Texas, we're having great conversations about charging storms. We're all built for it. We can all get through it. We can all learn something from it. So thanks for tuning in and I'll see you next time. You've been dialed into the built for the storm podcast with Jeremy Affel. And he strikes out. That's four straight for Affel. Can't do it any better than Jeremy Affel. If you like what you heard, please like, rate, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify today. Jeremy Athel here for Free Roam Brewing Company. Do you enjoy craft beer? I do. So I started Free Roam Brewing Company. Our logo, environment, and community all reflect the mighty buffalo, a creature built for the storm. It symbolizes inner strength, perseverance, and a love of freedom. Here at Free Roam Brewing Company, we are determined to strengthen our community through the love of craft beer. Our premium quality lagers and ales reflect the diverse experiences and tastes of our community. In a boundless world of potential beer styles, we cherish the freedom to roam. So if you're in the Bernie area, whether local or passing through, join us on Main Street and enjoy your freedom.
Jeremy Affel here for the Hotel Via. I know you've heard it's at the intersection of sports, technology, and entertainment. But for me, it's my home away from home when I visit San Francisco. I can give you 50 great reasons why I chose Hotel Via, but it's easier for me to say it provides all the comforts of home, family owned and operated, and of course, it's across from the beautiful Oracle Park. So when you're coming to San Francisco for business, pleasure, vacation, or just coming to a sporting event, check in to the Hotel Via.